What's the benefit to having a 20-unit building versus 20 single-family homes? You have 20 units under one roof. It's, it's higher density for that cash flow. It's a box that's going to be smaller, that's going to generate more income. Well, hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the Western United States. I'm Nicholas Cook, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Williams. Our guest today is Sean Worrell. He's a senior associate with Colliers in the multifamily division in Portland, Oregon. Sean, thanks for being here with us. We're really excited to have you on the show. Uh, How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into real estate investing and, and brokerage in general? Awesome. Well, thanks both of you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, multifamily investment, uh, I kind of just fell into in the middle of the recession. I, I was coming out of college and I, I knew uh, a little bit about real estate. I had some, uh, my father had been in real estate for a number of years. Um, and at the time in 2010, I was looking to be a developer. I'd gone around to any and every developer in the city of Portland I could talk to. Uh, as I was going to the Portland State uh, Real Estate Finance Program, where we met, Nick. Very true. And they said, we're definitely not hiring right now, but uh, go get into brokerage. You'll learn the market. And, you know, that's that's how we did it. So uh, at the time, I just happened to uh, reacquaint myself with a friend who was doing multifamily brokerage at Marcus and Millichap. Uh, ended up interning there for six months in 2010 and then switched over to be a broker I guess at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, um, and it was just specializing close in east side uh, multifamily for the first couple of years, uh, right out of the recession. Got it. And so you started at Marcus, and uh, now you're at Collier's. That's right. I started at Marcus. I'm at Collier's now. Took a little uh, interim time. So 2013, went to CBRE. Uh, we we there wasn't a private client group at the time, just an institutional presence. And uh, me and my partner from Marcus and Millichap went over there, started the private client group. Uh, and then 2016, went to Collier's, uh, found a good fit with a, with a group there. Uh, now there are two of us there really focused on private client multifamily, just solely, uh, specifically. And uh, Oregon and Southwest Washington is, is what we cover. Awesome. Great. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure our listeners are really excited to learn a little bit about the multifamily side of the business. Um, You know, there's a lot of people who typically cut their teeth in single family because it tends to be approachable. It's what they know. Um, So for people who are wanting to invest in multifamily, can you maybe explain the difference uh, between a multifamily broker and a residential broker, right? Because a lot of times people go to the experts first and they may just have, you know, a friend that's like, oh, I'm a realtor. I can help you buy a building. But maybe you can you know, start people out with a little bit of background. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, residential brokers, realtors, and multifamily brokers, or any commercial broker, really are no different in terms of their licensing. It's all it's all the same license. It's more uh, kind of the education of what they specialized in from the get go. And I'd say multifamily brokers are just that. They're just focused on multifamily, so they're not really doing any other product types. Uh, you know, there's the the differential or differentiator of um, lending typically five units and up you're going to get a commercial loan so you would consider that more of a commercial property four units and under um, tends to be more the bailiwick of uh, I'd say residential brokerage but it's I think it's more just a specialization you know it's, 
it's not as serious as if you're getting a, a surgery and you want, you know, you're getting eye surgery and you have a, a foot doctor, so to speak. It's not that serious. You're not going to die. Uh, but multifamily brokers, I mean, the, with their only focus being on multifamily, they tend to, you know, hopefully be able to see some of the things coming that you know are going to be issues, you know, or, or that are not. Um, so just experience, really. And do you think that means that you need a specialist or in your opinion, you could just any broker that's got experience would would do? It depends on, I think, what your goals are. If you're buying or selling, um, buying, uh, it can make a difference. You know, I've seen some scenarios where um, I know some levers to pull in in a conversation or a negotiation that can add value to my buyer, you know, is a credit off the top or, you know, whatever within our negotiation um selling it depends on the asset um you know in the size of the asset obviously the larger you go uh i'd say the higher sophistication of of buyer profile and uh it's nice to have somebody who is going to be just dedicated and know kind of the ins and outs of that that product type so if somebody was you know they're they're wanting to get into multifamily they want to you know know, line up a broker to kind of help them with their search do you have any ideas on maybe some questions that they could ask maybe a broker to kind of help vet and determine if they're going to be a good fit for them to help them with their search? You know, first and foremost, what's your, what's your goal? What's your focus? Um, and if that aligns with you as, as the client, I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. Um, if you're looking for multifamily units in this range, in this location, and it's a broker that doesn't specialize in that product type in that area, um, it doesn't mean you still can't do it. You just might not get there as quickly with somebody who's just dedicated to that specific area. Um, some brokers are very geographically focused, and that's a, a lot of that's like cultural within the brokerage uh, shops. Do you think that um, in terms of, so like with a residential property, right, these things hit the multiple listing service, they get broadcast out. Um, pretty much everyone knows about them. Do you think that a lot of the times you're seeing having a broker relationship is going to help you get access to a multifamily property that you otherwise would not ever see? You know, that's a, a good thing you're touching on now. I feel like uh, given where we're at in the cycle, a good amount of properties that transact are going to, are going to see the light of day. They're going to see, you know, broad exposure. Um, we always, that's our recommendation um, with any property because you just never know, especially with Portland now, we're, we're on the map. Um, you know, nationally and internationally for, for people looking to invest here. And you never know what you're going to find when you have it on broad exposure. We've had some scenarios where, you know, you've got your great set of buyers here and then someone comes out of left field and offers your client something that fits their goals much better, higher price, quicker close, whatever it is. Um, but I, I think historically, and it still holds true, um, you'll find buyers that don't want to put the property on the market. And if you have the relationship with that broker who has a relationship with that seller, a lot of deals get done off market. And, and so uh, that's, I think, where the, the, ad, the advantage comes is if you're dealing with somebody who's solely just calling and building relationships with owners of multifamily in a given area, uh, they'll be able to link that, make that connection. It's, re- it's really interesting. Hey, Sean, uh, thanks very much for being in here. I really appreciate you coming and spending Thank the time. You. Good to see you this again. Is fun. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting that you say that. I mean, obviously, I'm a real estate broker on the residential side primarily, but a lot of people are in our audience don't understand the differentiation because a licensed broker in the state of Oregon is a licensed broker, right? Yep. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's our area of expertise. Um, and we have a duty to our client to 
sub out or refer business that is beyond our area of expertise, right? So for me, I mean, I've done a few commercial deals. I've done several multifamily deals, but that's not my area of expertise. I don't know the same things that you would know if you have a specific east side niche, let's say, with multifamily yeah, yeah. units, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that point of differentiation and securing a relationship like Nick is talking about as far as having someone that knows your end goal, which I heard you say, that knows the market and uh, knows what some of those pressure points may be for either the buyer or the seller. I think that relationship is, is incredibly valuable just <clears throat> from the point of knowing, okay, well, this is really a realistic goal or to be able to break it down to your client and say, you're not going to find that in the inner east side right now. There's just too much going on, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we all value our time and efforts. And if they're misguided, um, that, that hurts, you know, you don't want to be doing that. So it's good to um, you know, get as credible of an opinion as you can on any, you know, any given topic. And, um, you know, I know that you can only probably talk a little bit on the markets that you operate in, but you must have a sense of kind of overall, especially on the West, you know, Western United States, West Coast in terms of, um, you know, my question, which is, you know, who do you really see buying out there in the marketplace? Is it local people buying local properties? Do you see a lot of people come from out of state? Um, you know, are these buyers of multifamily properties typically just individuals with, with a decent amount of, you know, private equity or are you seeing groups and like, you know, syndicators, things like that? Like what, what kind of people are getting into the multifamily space? Portland, I think historically was a, was a more local market. Um, I believe, you know, the run up before the last, uh, you know, in the last cycle before the, before the recession, uh, in that kind of peak period, 0607, I saw some graphs where it was like 75% out of state and probably of that 75% out of California. Um, I'd say that kind of came back. So I, I always point to this kind of interesting, and this might be anecdotal. Um, I haven't run all the numbers to see if this is this holds true market-wide, but 2011, 12, and 13, out of the recession, it was majority local. Uh, buyers. There were some that were that were out of state that were um, that already had holdings here, kind of kind of already quasi local, if you will. Um, but the then 2013, 14, 15, we started to see values just go leaps and bounds higher than what we were used to. A lot of the local buyers said, "Oh, that's crazy. You know, we're 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 all waiting for the for the next downturn. We're going to step step back a little bit." And then really a lot of capital out of California kind of came and took took the cycle up another notch, um, which is a whole interesting part about just the history of where we're at in the Portland market. We've had this major reset in uh, in values to kind of catch up with the rest of the West Coast, um, the coastal markets in particular. And so right now it's a it's a pretty broad mix. Um, it's an interesting time right now. It's 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 very dynamic. But I'd say you're looking still predominantly out of state, probably 60%, but there's a lot of local investment as well. Um, so it's kind of kind of split right now. And are you finding that it's, you know, individuals or groups that are kind of doing this? And I realize, you know, obviously this is maybe Portland's a different market, but, you know, Seattle, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, um, obviously getting into other, some of the other major cities throughout the Western United States as well. But people tend to think about inflated values as being a coastal thing. Um, although, you know, you are seeing a rise just across, I would say, the United States in general. Mm-hmm. Saying w- whether or not that's a, that holds true with other markets on the West Coast? Well, yeah, I guess my question is, is, you know, is this really, are apartment buildings a, an area that individuals can operate or they really need to have, you know, a group? 
as far as the purchasers, are we looking at individuals purchasing these and stepping up, or are we looking at um, some groups of folks that are combining money or institutions that are coming in? Thank you. Okay, good. I, I think I understand where you're coming from. I'm, I'm running a bit slow today. <laughs> uh, yes. So that's also, you know, probably 75%, I would say, syndicated, you know, multiple groups going into these deals. Um, in, in one sponsor who's who's running the show, so to speak. Um, there's a lot of, you know, private uh, high net worth individuals still in the market, um, just families who have, you know, accumulated units over the years and, and uh, have the ability to, you know, put down and, and I guess play in that market. It's, it's hard to compete with uh, when you combined 20 people out of the Bay Area to, to win a bidding war in Portland. They're, they're probably going to win. They got a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, there's there's individuals out there as well. And and what's drawing them here? Is it, uh, you know, a cap rate? Are you are you at three and a half down in California and up here you're at five and a half, six? Or is it the appreciation opportunity? Is it the fact that it's an untapped market? What, what's, what's drawing them here? They're looking for the quality of life. They're looking for value. Um, they see that this is a, an opportunity or a market that, has the same or similar quality of life as a lot of the, the markets that they're from or that they're used to, uh, it's just vastly more affordable. I mean, it's like, you know, us being from Portland, looking at any other small town around Portland that are, you know, in, in Oregon, uh, in the suburbs going, man, there's, I can't believe you have th these low of rents out here, which is, you know, not, which is changing now, uh, as, as all the markets are kind of catching up. Um, but I think it's a combination of those things. It's, it, we have a very diverse job pool in Portland, which is great. It's one of the more diverse, I think, in the nation. Um, we've attracted a lot of very highly educated people. They're also seeming to be pretty mobile, not putting down as many roots as, as they can. So something to, we just heard an economic uh, update yesterday about that. Something to consider in the future, but ultimately it's a quality of life and, and I think affordability play. And then knowing that people are going to want to move here and it's going to appreciate. And, you know, in many cases we've seen properties with rents doubling in uh, you know a couple years after they were purchased um, or just natural natural appreciation it, it seems like Portland has really been kind of one of the untapped western you know west coast cities that has a lot of the same amenities culture environment access to natural resources and you know the natural recreation as well and at the same time we're below price point you know we're, we're the cheapest major metropolitan on the west and you know people have seen that and said well it, it's not going to last forever at some point they're going to be at our price point so buy low sell high right so that, that totally makes sense let's talk a little bit about transition you know because um on my end what i find is a lot of my clients start out with the you know as an accidental investor they got a single family house and they pick up another one and then they convert to a duplex and you know sometimes they're they're thinking well maybe i should go commercial maybe i should go multifamily. what's my next step matt what should i invest in and my response is well what what's your tolerance, right? What's your threshold to pain? What, what product do you like? And as you mentioned earlier, there's lots of different, uh, you know, there's differentiation, commercial, multifamily, retail. Um, so if you're transitioning and you're going from a 20 unit, uh, 20 single family units to 20 units uh, in a single building, what, what's some of the upside? What's the benefit to having a 20 unit building versus 20 single family homes? You have 20 units under one roof, uh, one, one physical envelope. Um, there's going to be a lot less grounds. It's, it's higher density for that cash flow. It's a box that's going to be smaller that's going to generate more income. Um, you know, good and bad to that. Uh, obviously, if you have a fire in 
that one building, then that's going to take out a bigger chunk than if one of the houses out of the 20 were on fire. But uh, that's why we have insurance and, uh, you know, take precautions to not, not let fires happen, uh, as you guys know <laughs> all too well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that would be the primary thing. There's, uh, you know, I guess getting into the financing of all of that, you know, depending on what kind of debt they have on those single-family homes, you're looking at one non-recourse loan. Uh, typically on a uh, multifamily building and that limits a lot of your risk and exposure to you know whatever's happening on that building so um, I would overall maybe summarize that as ease, ease of ownership ease of management um, for uh, you know a similar if not better return all things dependent yeah are you seeing investors look at both portfolio types, multifamily and keeping some in single family or some people transitioning to and from or back and forth? I've, uh, I haven't dealt with that a lot. I know a couple clients who, uh, amassed a, a good amount of single family and their, their strategy is always, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look to sell one or two of these off and then get into a five unit or a 10 unit, uh, something along those lines. So uh, in terms of acquisitions of portfolio of homes, I haven't seen a lot of that in, in Portland. You do when it's um, uh, like 10 condos back when it was broken condos in the recession. Obviously, you saw a lot more of it, uh, but I'm seeing some of that now in like Central Oregon um, and kind of spread out to where if if they're contiguous and they're all adjoined and it's not, you know, this condo in this building and that condo in that building, um, you'll see some similar kind of investor profiles looking at them. So it sounds like it's more of a step up, you know, obviously than a, uh, planned, um, you know, I'm going to start out in this multifamily world, uh, which I'm finding in a lot of my, you know, with a lot of my clients as well. Let's assume that someone is wanting to get into the apartment business and they want an apartment building. What, what does the financing package look like on that? What are they looking at for terms, a down payment, um, you know, how it's structured, and, you know, the reason that's important is because it really is different, right? It's not like with a single family home, you typically are looking at a 15 or a 30 year fixed rate, and then you just let it sit. But it's quite different in, in multifamily. Tell us a little bit about that. You have a lot of options, uh, which is nice. And, you know, typically I'd say look at as many options as you can when you're evaluating that, um, because you can, you really can run the gamut. If you're talking to your bank, whoever's holding your deposits, um, probably more of a relationship bank, uh, not to name any names, but they typically aren't the most competitive. Um, that's not entirely true, but you know, the, the more big commercial banks, that's, that seems to hold true. Uh, and then, you know, you can look at, uh, a lot of local banks, regional banks who are just doing commercial loans and depending on the, uh, needs of the asset or the cash flow on the asset, um, if you're looking at something that doesn't have a big appreciation play, meaning going in and doing some add value and raising the rents up, um, and you're just looking, you know, set it and forget it. I'm happy with my four to five percent annually, um, and that's all I'm really expecting it maybe to grow two or three percent per year over the next ten years. Um, then you're you're probably going to get a decent leverage, uh, depending on the rents and, and expenses, to where you could put down twenty five, thirty percent. Um, yeah, so that depends on kind of risk profile and how the numbers work out on the asset. If it is something that is add value, meaning you're you're probably paying a premium for that asset compared to where the income stream is today, um, your expenses are going to be 50% of your income, uh, which is always a sign 
depending on the size of the asset, the age of the asset, size of units, um, you will ideally want to be somewhere between 30 to 40% of your expense load on, on rents. So it's a sign that there's an opportunity there somewhere. You can get in there, be more efficient with management, uh, reduce your cost, you know, depending on what, what line item looks out of whack, um, or there's an opportunity there. You must be below rents. You know, that's, that's usually always the, the answer. And in that case, you're probably going to have to come down with more. Banks are going to want to see a little more skin in the game. They, do, they will do some bridge loans, going to get, get interesting with that. Um, but in, in, in terms of terms, um, typically see five, seven, ten years. Um, maybe you're putting 30 to 40 percent down, you know, all things dependent. And uh, rates are great right now. They're as low as they've been since 2016. And uh, you're looking at sub four on like a five year, uh, wow. you know, probably low fours on a seven. Um, some banks got really competitive earlier in the year uh, with a lot of interest only loans, which makes cash flow look fantastic. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's, it's so weird to be like nine years into this expansionary run. And it's still a really good time to buy if you find the right deal and if, you know, there's so many components that go into the, the risk profile, but it's still great. Well, there's also a pretty good opportunity in some seller-carried financing, right, which is not as prevalent in the single-family world, but in multifamily, for many investors, that's an exit strategy for them, right? I mean, yep. they've owned a building for quite some time, and yep. they can get away from the liability and away from the expense and still have that income coming in. How much of that are you seeing out in the market? I don't have a ton of experience with that. I know we do have those conversations quite often. Um, and a lot of owners, you know, I'd say like the classic um, owner that bought 20 or 30 units 30 years ago, um, and they have it pretty much paid off or they have very, very low debt on the asset. Um, that's, a, that's a good retirement strategy for them, uh, depending on if it's amortized or not, or if it's interest only, um, they could just be paying, um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Normal. I don't know. Taxes. Ta yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so they'll, they'll pay income tax on the That's, on the interest. I can't remember and then the, not the Not the yeah. gain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, if you keep the balloon on 10 years, 20 years, depending on what you negotiate and structure, then they'll pay their capital gains on that. Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't see that a lot just because the terms, the, the bank debt is so favorable right now. Yeah. Um, and then... There's a lot of exit strategies for owners that, you know, depending on their goals and what they need to do um, to give them income to live off of or a nice nest egg for their family when they pass on, whatever it is, there's a few different strategies to help them maneuver that. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, let's pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about due diligence, right? So this is where a lot of times people miss stuff uh, and pay for it later. I know that we've definitely on the management side seen a lot of things that um, people have failed to look at when they were buying or account for and really affects them operationally. And so I guess, you know, just you've worked both sides of transactions. Um, you've represented buyers and sellers. You know, can you discuss maybe a little bit about, um, you know, for those new investors who are trying to get into multifamily, you know, what to expect from a due diligence process, maybe some of the timelines, some of the costs, the parties involved. Maybe you can just kind of walk us through some of that. As a buyer, uh, your due diligence period is extremely important. That is your time to get a good look under the under the hood. Um, you know, depending on if this is 100% of your net worth you're putting into a deal or 2%. Um, you know, it takes on a, a bigger level of risk. Obviously, you got to. Sure. You're really worried about <laughs> it if it's everything you got. Um, 
So, you know, the key items, uh, obviously, most most loans will be non-recourse. So you're just wanting to make sure you're going to hit your debt cover at a very base level, and even in a worst-case scenario. Um, so kind of modify those terms, which means you want to uh, have a good idea for the market. Generally speaking, if you're looking at a multifamily deal in an area, um, you'll have a pretty good idea, but you should be doing a rent survey. Uh, whatever broker you'll be working with should give you a good rent survey. Make sure they're properties that are very similar in age in size and in location um, and then actually call the managers of those properties and, and talk to them like I always like to shop quote unquote the on-site manager and, and just call and ask them questions and you know, tell them tell them you're a broker tell them you're an owner or just pretend you're a tenant and just try to kind of find out as much information as you can um, and that should give you a good idea for what the demand is for the you know at the front end the income side of the of the equation um, and then expenses, obviously, you have to drill down and know what your expenses are going to be. And, and, you know, I start at the top of the list really with property taxes. They're uh, in first position. They're going to get paid. Uh, we have a pretty stable tax structure in, in Oregon. You're looking at 3% per year. We have some bonds that can uh, uh, change that if they're passed and, and increase your tax load. But generally speaking, you're looking at about 3% per year. If you do some improvements, you might get reassessed, et cetera. So be aware of that. And then, you know, on down the line, insurance, utilities, um, insurance you can get quotes on, but it's always nice to see what they've been paying for a number of years. Utilities um, are important to take a look at. Get 24 months of utility usage and look month to month. And if there are spikes in certain areas, find out why. Ask ask what, what this was related to, what that was related to. You can talk to utility companies. Um, you'll usually learn a lot from that. Also talk to talk to your broker. Um, about uh, any kind of anything that looks off, so to speak. Um, and then, you know, a lot of it comes down to the, the condition of the property and what you then think that it's going to cost to run the property. Um, so uh, uh, you have to have a good physical inspection. And I would say get in there yourself. Or if you're, you know, a large company, you have people that you trust that are going to give you a, an opinion on what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done, whether they're cosmetic improvements, whether it's, deferred maintenance items, um, you need to have a good idea of what that's going to cost you, when you need to do it, um, and then taking that back into what it's going to take to operate the building from a repairs and maintenance standpoint. You can look back at the last couple of years of how the other owner was running it, but that might be vastly different from what you plan to do. So you got to take that with a grain of salt. Um, if they have been putting a lot of money into it, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes they've been throwing a lot yeah. of bandages at, at wounds and not really fixing them. Do you, I mean, do you find that uh, you're able to kind of uncover, so a lot of times people, when they know they're going to sell, right, they start operating their building differently in the last maybe 12, 18 months, maybe 24 months. Are you able to kind of pinpoint that to see like, hey, where income's risen, expenses have gone down, you know, being more efficient versus, hey, they're just dodging their responsibility to kind of inflate you know, net income. Um, is that something that you look for when you're doing your due diligence? Yeah, our, um, you know, our standard is uh, just just taking it through at a at like an appraisal uh, uh, expense load uh, standard. We want to make sure that we're, if the expenses are very, very low, we're going to put in a higher expense load uh, to estimate what the, you know, what the annual operation should be. Um, there's usually a story to tell there that you can kind of get through pretty quick, uh, like in that case where, you know, somebody started to slowly increase rents or dramatically increase rents mm -hmm. and maybe squeeze expenses a little bit, um, you can get a good idea of what, you know, what was going on there and, and uh, 
what it actually should be operating going forward. So historicals are a good barometer, but they're definitely not what you want to make the decision on. Um, you know, they'll, they'll help you guide like utilities. I think are one of the things I look at the most. Um, mm. But depending on you know the efficiency of the appliances or what kind of plumbing they have, that can be modified a bit. Uh, but everything else, you got to be like, I'm going to manage it this way and get people that you trust to help you get those numbers. Right. And is one of the things that you look at is security deposits, like the sizes of security deposits. Um, one of the things that we see in management a lot is, especially with new buildings that are being leased up, you know, people are just trying to get, you know, tenants in the door. And all of a sudden, you know, these security deposits are 100 bucks, 200 bucks, And, you know, if you're a long-term holder, you're going to burn through that, so you may be undercapitalized in that way. Is that? Do you guys take a kind of a keen look at that as well? You know, probably not as much as I should. It is a factor if they're, um, I guess, on the, on either end of the spectrum, too high or too low, it kind of stands out, and then that's part of the story. You know, typically it would be newer construction, and you might not be as concerned about it in new construction because it's new. Um, I mean, you hope they can't do that much damage in, in, in a given year, but we all know that that is not true, <laughs> and they can. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, that's that's actually a very good uh, point because you're seeing a lot of uh, new construction deals have to be competitive to fill their units. So they'll mm-hmm. that's that's a really hard thing to peg is where new construction values could should be depending on the operations. Are you seeing much wiggle room with sellers when you come in? I mean, a lot of people in this realm, they're looking at cap rates, right? I mean, what what's the return? Um, are you seeing sellers say, no, things are trading at five and a half, and so I'm selling at five and a half, even though they have maybe some deferred maintenance, which might you know lead to capital improvements, um, or some uh, undermanaged areas? Um, are you seeing some negotiation opportunity there, or are people holding pretty firm to to just the return or the the cap right there that's a very good question i think that um it you know by and large um people will be holding generally to an idea of value uh they've seen it rise for the last 10 years um they've gotten a call from so many different brokers like myself over the years telling them hey i can get you a little bit more hey i can get you this i can get you that this just sold for a four and three quarter cap down the street and that puts your you know at x value um so they do have an inflated sense of uh value but all it takes is one 1031 buyer to come in and say well okay i see through some of the risk i'll pay that price you know and they might have the added incentive to protect their cap protect yeah. their capital uh, to get through a 1031 and uh they'll, they'll pay that price so all, all that to say they, they hold pretty firm but there are opportunities, and, and I think if if you see a deal that's been sitting on the market for quite a while, um, that's an opportunity. That typically means there's there's something there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, just I just want to jump in here for our listeners, just in case people aren't familiar with a 1031 exchange. Basically, uh, do you want to explain maybe what that is a little bit, or? I will start with I'm not a tax expert. <laughs> uh, Neither I, am I. Internal Revenue Code uh, IRC 1031. Um, that allows you to uh, defer your capital gains tax on the sale of, a, of an investment. I think it's just any investment, right? Is because you can do that on any. Well, it's like gains, kind, right? like kind. So like basically, kind. you can exchange, you know, defer. Yeah. The uh, capital gains tax. Great. So my my beginning in multifamily actually started with my dad um, 
fixing and flipping units in, in Longview and Castle Rock, Washington, and he 1031'd out of uh, Timberland, which was held as an investment. Mm. Um, you, typically, people are like, Timberland? How is that income producing? It doesn't have to be income producing. It just has to be held as an investment. Um, so you cannot do it out of your house. Uh, if you're a house, you have, you know, that's your single family residence. Um, you have some tax deferrals there, 250,000, yeah. uh, 500,000 when you're married. Um, so, but if it's held as an investment, so any, any additional home, rental property, um, and anything really that you're holding as an investment could be a raw piece of dirt. You sell that, you have a gain, talk to your accountant. Mm. I'm not smart enough to, to say that out loud. It's fine. I just wanted to make sure that uh, the audience kind of knew what we were we were talking about. Just yeah. because when you're talking about 1031, I mean that's a powerful tool and strategy, right? Come to a seller and say, "Hey, this person's not going to. You know, you're not going to have a sale fail because yeah. this person's committed." It creates urgency, right? I mean, in that situation, one of the key elements to a 1031 exchange, you know, the two key elements. Number one, postpone taxes. You're not going to avoid them. At some point down the road, you're going to pay them, but you get to avoid them yep. if you exchange into something larger, step up. Uh, equal or greater value, but you yep. you have a, a finite time to do that, right? Yep. So 45 days to identify and 180 days to actually close on that. So yep. that tells yeah, yeah. yeah. So that tells the seller, you know, you're in a situation uh, where you have to close on something, and they've yep. identified that property as as a, a likable income. So and that's that's the biggest. Uh, I mean, that's everything really. 1031s for private client multifamily is. 90% of the conversation, it's most of what we, we do in our conversation, either helping somebody buy something when they're in a 1031, they call us, they have an urgent need, that's a buyer who's going to buy something or they're going to owe 700000 a couple million to, to the government, so they would like to find something urgently and you know that that's a buyer who's going to actually transact. And then sellers, um, you know, with, with the appreciation of values we've seen in the la of last number of years, that's a big capital gains that they're going to be looking at. And uh, you know, ideally, people don't want to want to pay that. They'd rather uh, put that into the next investment and, and carry on the kind of the net worth building, uh, whether it's just in their generation or for multiple generations. Obviously, you get a stepped-up basis if you pass away to your kids. It's a separate topic, but um, yeah, that's everything. So phasing for that 180-day period is, is very important because that's stressful. Well, and I, I think that it speaks a little bit to what we're the origin. I think of our tangent here was really, you know, are you be seeing negotiations? And the reality is, if a deal for me is getting a five percent return when I buy a property, but someone else who has not just the return uh, to gain, but also the avoiding the tax, they don't need a five percent return. They're okay with a four point seven five return, and technically to them, they're still ahead. Yep. But to me, I lose out on the deal. Yep. Right. So that, that's kind of how it comes down in, in practical sense. Yep. Well, thank you all for joining us so far. We're actually going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor and be right back with Sean Worrell, who's going to take all of the knowledge he's given so far and tell us how to implement it and a little bit about what today's market looks like. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com.
And we're back with Sean Worrell from Colliers International. We want to talk a little bit, not just about the background uh, and the current uh, state of how to get into multifamily and kind of what that commercial world looks like, but also a little bit about um, what the current climate is and, and what's what's going on. Now, obviously, interest in, in multifamily investing has been on the rise. And as a result of that, prices per unit have really grown. We talked a little bit about that in, in the last segment. We talked about, um, you know, getting a good deal, right? And the concept of getting a good deal. Do you find it better to buy existing buildings or develop new land from an investor perspective? Because that's kind of the tear, right? I mean, right now, the cost of construction has gone up by, what, 24% in the last two years or something like that. It, it's, a, it's a pretty intense market as far as building goes. The cost is expensive, but um, at the same time, there's a pretty significant urge to build more units, and then you have uh, a good opportunity, really, with brand new buildings as far as maintenance goes. So, mm-hmm. um, is it better to buy old and keep, old and renew it, old, uh, uh, just land and, and rebuild? What, what are you seeing out there? Well, um, I have a I have a deep newfound respect for anybody who who develops um, that I found recently as I've I've taken a foray to try to do my own. Um, it's it is very difficult. The you know by and large, um, if you don't have experience with a developer or a partnership with a, an, an experienced developer, or you're a glutton for punishment, um, then buy existing. There's much much less risk. Uh, you know dramatically less risk. Um, you know you also are. Let's say right now you're going to pick up something in in Portland. Um, let's say inner northeast for. 160 to 175,000 per door, and maybe it's a five cap, uh, and it's rents are near market. Maybe it's a five and a quarter cap, and they're, you know, fully at market, and and there's not a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, or it could be a three cap or a, or a four cap, and your rents are dramatically under market, which are there's not that many of those left, but uh, it does happen occasionally. Uh, that's 175,000 a unit. Maybe you're putting in. 10 to 15,000 a door and improvements um, and you're going to get a when all is said and done and you you know on turnover get your rents up uh, you're looking at a six percent just kind of simple return you're looking at paying cash for that asset uh, a little different depending on your debt structure for new construction um, you're looking to build 250 300,000 a door depending on the type of product probably higher if you're building a really nice big building um, so it's more capital intensive, just where we're at in the cycle right now. Um, uh, by and large, I'm, I'm actually very bullish on building in Portland. Uh, we went through this glut of new supply when inclusionary housing policy came into Portland, which I know we're both aware of. Um, and we have really weathered the storm. Uh, we still have a couple of years, probably 18, 24 months to digest that. Um, but Portland's been popular. We're having in migration. We've seen rents drop on new construction on the high, high end of what people were asking. Um, but things are getting absorbed, and that's that's good. And banks have helped out with interest only, uh, refinance loans. So that's uh, been helpful. So, is is the return as good? I mean, if you look at just the cost of the properties, I mean, is the return, and really a, a lot of that has to do with hold time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you buy a, a property that's fully occupied, even if it's not high grade and you're paying 150 a door and you get a deal on it, um, let's assume that you have 100% occupancy because you're low on rents versus paying 300 a door and you have the lease up, the build time, the, the, all the caveats and mm-hmm. the 
per, you know, the, the add to the work order because this goes wrong and that goes wrong. Yep. Does it still cash flow? Do the numbers work? Uh, d- you know, depending on the structure, you're probably looking at uh, three to five percent per year. Um, you make the money on the sale, uh, definitely. Uh, you know, depending on if you can turn it around, lease it up, and sell it at a, a very good cap rate, um, then you're you're having a great time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're going to be holding onto it for seven to ten years, then it's going to be pretty nominal cash flow. But um, we're we're all banking on Portland's rents going up. I mean, that's I wouldn't say banking on it. We're all expecting it. It's, we've seen the market grow quite a bit, um, and you're going to have a very low deferred maintenance building. So in the interim, you're probably going to see a higher return and lower risk buying existing, doing some improvements, mm-hmm. um, lower, lower uh, entry point. Yeah. Will. Well, the, the urban, in the urban core, um, you're seeing a lot of retail on the main, apartments up above. Um, what, what kind of unit mix do you like as far as some retail, one bedroom, two bedrooms? There are micro units out there. So what, what, what are you seeing that you think might be a, a good product out there as far as a mix goes on the new construction? Yeah, I think, um, you know, having that kind of normal, there's an old rule, I think 50, 25, 25 studios, 25% of your mix, uh, one bedrooms being 50% of a varying size, and then uh, 25% two bedrooms. It, it, it definitely is location dependent, and if you're in an area that um, lends itself to, uh, you know, more maybe families or you know higher earning incomes, and you have a couple wanting a two bedroom willing to pay 2,500 a month, then then great, build that, and maybe build more of them than than the opposite, um, or you know maybe you're near a high student population, um, or you know not as maybe high of an income earning. Uh, uh, neighborhood uh then maybe you're looking at more studios i've always liked the one bedrooms because you kind of are an in-between you, you kind of catch all um but really i think the the winners the last two years as we've gone into this period of uh, dynamic market changes uh have been the smaller studios just from price per pound um you're looking at you know stuff in the 995 range in rent and that's hard to find in anywhere in portland let you know in these neighborhoods um, so that the, I think that gets to the affordability uh, conversation, which that's affordability's king. Uh, that that'll help you weather any storm. Mm-hmm. How how much demand are you seeing for the micro units out there, and and how much are developers and builders jumping on the bandwagon there? There's a decent amount. Um, yeah, there's a decent amount, and I think you know every every building being different, uh, those tend to go pretty quick from that price point standpoint. Um, we are, we've seen a lot of just solely micro unit developers enter in this market, um, and they've done pretty well. Um, you know, if you're pushing, you know, five and a half, six bucks per foot in your rent, so you're looking at twelve to thirteen hundred dollars for a micro unit. Yeah, there's it's not you're going to be a little slower. You got a lot of competition at that price point for a little larger unit, maybe with even a little better amenities, possibly. Um, so yeah, there, but there's a fair amount. It, it goes back to the affordability of it, and I think that's that proves itself. We all need uh, a good, clean place to lay our head before we 
go out to the next bar cafe here in Portland. <laughs> well, there'll be plenty Coffee of that. Shop. So uh, you had mentioned affordability. What about affordable development? Is that uh, is there an opportunity in that niche specifically? Because I mean, what makes it affordable? And some you know many of our listeners probably understand this, but maybe not a lot of the laymen understand it. What makes it affordable is not the low rent. What makes it affordable is the tax dollars go into going into the building um, to supplement, right? It's a subsidy, essentially. So is there a niche there on the building side for affordable housing? Absolutely. Uh, a fair amount of our that's a new construction now is, is targeted at that. Um, inclusionary housing you know, makes it a requirement to build some affordable units, and I think the structure of most of you know, for-profit developers, um, IH-compliant new developments, uh, don't have any of those tax incentives uh, or, you know, LIHTC or low-income housing tax credits, federal grants, what have you. Um, but there are a lot of uh, affordable housing developers that are active and looking in Portland now. Nice. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to pick your brain a little bit more here uh, on some transaction information. So, you know, you've been through quite a few transactions. And again, you know, you've been on the buy side and sell side. Um, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen buyers and sellers make just in a multifamily transaction? You know, mistakes for buyers uh, might be believing brokers. <laughs> uh, I mean, hey, you can trust me, right? But uh, no, I think, uh, you know, there, there are many cases where, um, yeah, a buyer probably has an incentive. They have an 180-day timeline or 45 days to identify and uh, they'll buy off on something and then find out that, you know, once they own it, that it wasn't quite what they had expected. Um, there's always a risk in that. Sellers, um, you know, picking the wrong broker. <laughs> Call me. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think uh, depending on um, the advice that you're given in the, the process that you take your property to market, um, it can dramatically impact your value and depending on your opportunity cost and um, what you know debt requirements you might have, if you got a, you got a loan you got to repay, what have you, it could really hurt you if you're, if you're taken down the wrong path in the wrong direction, uh, taking a longer time or getting less money. So it's not the best answer other than give me a call. <laughs> Sounds like brokers on both ends are some of the things you have to look out for. Now, you know, obviously, um, you know, a buyer may, or, you know, a buyer's broker may push them to close a transaction. I mean, you see this in all types of brokerage situations just because they want to get a commission check, right? They got to buy groceries too. So um, do you have people that you recommend your buyers kind of cross-reference what you're saying, maybe with other brokers, management companies? I mean, do you kind of say, hey, you know, this is my take, but while you're analyzing this deal, you should you know, check out and talk to a couple of these people. Do you have uh, maybe go-tos in the industry that, that you recommend? Yeah, here and there. And I think it's, you know, obviously depending on what, what topic we're bringing up, but I think you want to find that authority on whatever topic it is and say, you know, this is my take. Uh, please meet so-and-so and get their candid take on it. Pick it apart. Look, you know, whatever I'm giving you, um, I want you to like shake it around, turn it upside down, because uh, ultimately you're signing these documents and it's your money. Um, and, you know, you got to make that decision. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, multifamily obviously is a, is a great vehicle, offers a lot of different things, and we've covered a lot of that. 
but you know, like everything, markets are cyclical in nature. Um, you know, what do you tell your clients about the importance of liquidity or an exit strategy? You know, when they're buying these properties, I mean, is it? What, how do you advise them? It all comes back to them and their their specific situation. Um, it can you know range from we are very well capitalized. Our our families are all very well fed, and we don't really need to you know, worry too much about this asset or, um, you know, down the line, um, you know, a lot of sponsors are going to want to turn their deals around. They get more money when they sell um, and they want to kind of have an idea of when is a good time to sell. They have a fiduciary responsibility to their capital partners. Um, so, you know, talking to them about, talking to them about timing um, and, and when is the right time. Uh, I think our, our best um, value is also just uh, here is your value today. Here is what it could be given X, Y, Z. And then depending on the needs of your, your family and lifestyle, uh, here are some options that can, that can get you there or suit that. Um, but obviously, it, you know, we being specialist in, in multifamily and in our office and kind of all commercial real estate, trying to take a holistic look at, at every individual's needs. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one thing that we've seen a lot just on in the West Coast and, you know, starting to move inland a little bit more, you know, you start to see this stuff show up in places like Colorado as well. But Washington, Oregon and California have kind of been the pioneers is legislation. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of very active legislation in apartments and and landlords, uh, landlord tenant law in general. Um, How are you helping your clients kind of navigate just these rapid changes whether they're holding property and they're thinking about exiting or they're looking at buying? I think uh, as unemotional of a look as you can take it, it what is the, what changes are, you know, whether that's any changes in your life, um, you know, here are the facts. Here's kind of what we think is some of the reasons behind it, uh, why we are where we are, and, uh, you know, trying to have the crystal ball to what, what that will be, what that will mean in the future. Um, you know, there was a lot of responses to the recent changes in legislation in Portland have been uh, doom and gloom. Uh, you know, where the sky's going to fall, it's time to get out. Your values are never going to be the same. Well, then you go sell that asset to somebody and you got to say the exact opposite. Um, yeah. So you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. So I, I think, uh, you know, my biggest take is... To, to owners is we're a, a city that has grown rapidly in 10 years. We're going through a lot of growing pains. We have a lot of, you know, reactive policies uh, because there's a lot of very uh, uh, angry people who spoke loud enough to their uh, elected officials to, to make some changes. So what does that mean for us in the future? Um, not that much to me. I think Portland is still going to continue on the rise that it is. There are newer nuances um, to how you're going to operate and manage. And I think that that's really the biggest thing for me is that, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Owner, your expenses on the management side are going to go up. And I think that was what you sparked that with me a couple of years ago. Uh, Nick were the first ones to tell me um, the amount of, um, you know, just uh, legislative updates and, and certification and, and obviously now protocol that you're going to have to go through. Uh, I think that's one of the bigger bigger impacts. But if you're looking at the broad picture of Portland, where it sits in the West Coast and in the United States, we're still attracting a lot of people. We're still going to see a lot of rent growth, a lot of immigration. Um, 
so I, I think it's just try to be a, a candid look at in all directions of the, of the conversation. Well, you know, it, Sean, it seems a little like it's perspective too, right? I mean, if you're from California and you've got rent control and you move into a property here and you're moving money into this market and you're buying in this market, you're a little more comfortable than if you're in Texas where <laughs> there are very few rules and regulations yep. surrounding your rental properties. Yep. Um, so I, I could see that certainly being a, a, you know, a concern as well. Yes. And they also see yep. it as being really high priced. Whereas if you're moving from San Francisco to here, it's not high priced. Exactly. Right? So there's a lot of perspective that goes into that. And, and I think you, you know, you make a really good point that it's your job as the broker to kind of take the emotion piece out of that and just look at, you know, the return. Is it a solid investment? Does it fit the needs of your family and your, you know, the trust you're putting it into and, you know, your legacy that you're trying to leave or whatever that may be. So, you know, that's another really good point as far as uh, local knowledgeable representation when it comes to your area of expertise. So speaking of uh, area of expertise here, uh, what are the top five multifamily markets in the Western United States from a, an appeal perspective for investors? And that's not saying what's selling the fastest, because that could mean it's not appealing if everyone's selling, but it's more of a... Um, if you are looking for opportunity as an investor in multifamily and Portland, let's say is one of them, uh, what are the, what are the top five that you would say, Hey, look, I'm looking at this or some of my clients are investing in Denver as well as here. You know, what, what, what does that look like for you from your perspective? I was going to make a joke and say Vancouver and Portland and Milwaukee <laughs> and Oregon city and Beaverton, Areas and you just, <laughs> just spread the bets here in Portland and, and then go down to bend and, and, uh, you know, Eugene, um, so, you know, my, my focus is so really based in Portland, um, that I, that I wish I got a better look at a lot of other markets. I know for years now, Boise has been, uh, a conversation that's been had. It seems like it's, it's, uh, it's seen so much activity that it's, you know, maybe you quote unquote missed the great opportunities there. Um, but I, I, I still think Boise is a good one. I, I like to think, um, you know, to the extent that there are that opportunities still exist, kind of smaller regional capitals are an interesting one to look at. Uh, Spokane's somewhat Astoria. Um, you know, smaller uh, cities that have um, kind of some infrastructure that gives you that that city lifestyle. You know, you can, you can kind of feel belonging in a community and walk to work and walk to your kid's school, um, but you're way way cheaper on the affordability level, and I think that's you know, a big trend uh, nationally. Um, major markets, um, I, I love the Midwest. I think there's something to be had there. Um, I haven't done a deep dive into what, you know, what the long-term upsides will be, but um, I think finding those cities, neighborhoods that are in that, you know, neighborhood life cycle where they've uh, they've seen a heyday, they have a good infrastructure um, in their coming back up from the last 30, 40 years of uh, loss of jobs, loss of population. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you got to do a lot of DD into what the, the long-term prospects might be and how long it might take. But Well, I mean, yeah. And, and, I mean, the, the country, there's all kinds of you know, opportunity, whether you're going to the West or the you know, Midwest mm -hmm. or the East. But in terms of the West, I mean, do you have, you, do you have clients that are investing in you know, Phoenix and you know, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, are they in Salt Lake? I mean, do you have people that you know that are kind of diversifying where mm -hmm. they're buying? Yeah, Phoenix has been one uh, for a while, uh, and, and that's such a you know talk about a polar opposite from from Portland, um, from 
their really their zoning. Uh, you know, my understanding that you have those much bigger expansions and contractions in in Phoenix than you have in Portland. You're a little bit shielded from that. Uh, but yeah, Phoenix, uh, Boise, Seattle, uh, some that are going out kind of southeast. Um, but uh, yeah, my my focus is so much on Portland that I don't dive too deep on that. All right. Well, we're going to move into a, another segment of our our broadcast here and get into some uh, personal questions. Anything bef- uh, else on this topic that uh, we miss as far as questions you want to you want to bring up that you think is is critical? Uh, buy buy now, buy often, buy early. Don't don't over lever and uh, call any one of us sitting at this table if you need need advice on it. There we go. Uh, excellent advice. I'll take the call. Uh, so we're, we're going to get into some personal stuff here. I mean, uh, question one, is there an aha moment that you've had in the last year that's really changed your approach or perspective on some part of your career, your investment strategy, or your personal life? An aha moment. Um, I feel like I've had a couple on the multifamily side, which I think are interesting um, to consider. Uh, within the United States, I feel like there's uh, a level of um, uh, like public health uh, that most other countries would internalize um, and have services for that are put on landlords and owners. Um, we're really we're really there as a first responder for a lot of mental health issues, um, you know, wide ranging, um, and so there's a lot of um, Backlash with people who own real estate, and it's it it's, uh, comes from a lack of understanding and communication. But uh, just a, a better understanding of that industry that we're we're in uh, a very important industry. You know, my dad mentioned to me, and one of the reasons I I wanted to get into multifamily is through the recession, everybody needs a place to live, um, and these are people's homes, and so we do have to deal with a lot of respect in in that regard. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that kind of backlash to maybe a time where it was a, a flurry of activity and a lot of people were moved pretty quickly and they had to figure out a whole new life set, especially when, you, when people have families that they had a, a big disruption in their life. So, um, but with that said, um, landlords take on a lot and, and they got to, uh, you know, whether that means that we're going to be having more cost on, on the property management side or, or just a consideration of uh, your tenant as a, as a resident and, and um, you know, yeah. tr- an equal treatment on both ends of that. Well, it's really insightful for sure and uh, a great answer. Um, I have a question for you. <laughs> this might be a little nosy, but uh, tell us about an important ritual you have and do every day. Well, um, I would say my most important ritual uh, is actually at, at night and that is getting all my stuff ready for the next day um, setting out the clothes I'm gonna wear if I'm gonna work out I set that out um, I need I need probably more rituals throughout the day and I'm actively seeking some I listen to Maureen's <laughs> I listen to Maureen's talk and I liked her uh, mention to like not turn the email on until you finish everything you wanted I'm gonna use that Maureen thank you <laughs> uh, but yeah I think that that is the biggest one that I do and then I get in wake up early 
um, you know, get my workout in, and that kind of clears the my, my mental space for the rest of the day. But uh, maybe I'll come back on here in a couple of years and, and say I have some better routines throughout the day. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll have it all figured out in a couple of years. I'm no, sure. that's the plan. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, speaking of which, uh, how do you measure success? Um, I think happiness. I think, uh, you know, for me, uh, work is a, is a product of or, or a, a tool for my happiness in my relationship with my wife and my daughters and everything else is just, uh, uh, you know, feeding into that. I want them to be, I want them to have a good life and, and have good education and be healthy. So got to make sure I make the money. Um, but I think if you're, if you make all the money, you know, and as brokers, you have great years and you have not so great years. Um, but if you're not happy within that, you're not, you're not winning. Um, so finding, finding some sort of balance, but I think the scorecard for me is more that relationship with my wife and, and daughters and, and our happiness as a, as a family. Yeah. That's a great answer. Uh, you know, happiness is one of those things that's kind of hard to quantify. And when you correlate that with success, I think it, you know, that's a pretty firm parallel. Yep. And, and that's not to say, uh, you know, if I don't have money, I, I'm not that happy. I, money's good. Go. <laughs> money can help you do a lot of good things. Yeah, certainly. So um, we'd like to know if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? I should have thought of a good answer before this. I, I uh, was listening to some other podcasts. And I was like, I got to think of somebody great. Um, You know, I love history, so you know I, I initially think of like a Roosevelt, one of them, one of the presidents. But I might say my my mom's dad, uh, my grandfather. Um, he left us when I was 19, and you know I, I always looked up to him. He was uh, in the First Marine Division, served in the Pacific. Uh, Peleliu, Tarawa, things I found out later that were horrific. He never spoke about it. Um, went on to be the, oh, my uncle will correct me, but he was the CFO of Continental Airlines when he retired in the 80s. Um, came from nothing, really, out of, a, out of a large German family in the Midwest. And, um, but just a good guy, stoic, uh, good example. And I, I always wish I could talk more with him hear stories from way back when awesome that's awesome interesting family member um and then the other famous question is <laughs> if you had to choose between whiskey or wine which would it be you know the answer to that one yeah, but nobody else does <laughs> a nice single malt uh, one, one in each hand yeah yeah actually yeah, that's probably the best answer uh something from uh from Islay. all right yeah nice. good peaty scotch there we go. Man, it's making me thirsty. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming in and spending time with us today. How can our audience get a hold of you or uh, view some of your information, Sean? Uh, my information's online. You can look me up, uh, Sean Worrell, S-E-A-N-W-O-R-L, at Collier's. Uh, if you Google that, you should be able to find my homepage pretty quickly. I think I'm on LinkedIn. Not, not huge on the social networks, uh, so I think LinkedIn might be the most extent of where you can find me. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. If you find this show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first is please subscribe. The second, would you give us a review? And the more subscribers and the more reviews we have, the better the show and the guests. Until next time, invest in the West.